Welcome to the podcast of Wiser, women in surgery at the Emory Residencies, where we share the careers and life stories of Emory surgeons across all specialties to recognize the diverse achievements happening right here at our own institution. I'm Vivian Wang again of PGY5 in the Emory General Surgery Residency Program, and I'm here with Caroline Coleman again, who's a third year Emory medical student. In this episode, we have the privilege of talking to Dr. Virginia Schaefer. Dr. Schaefer is an associate professor of surgery in the Division of Colorectal Surgery here at Emory and has been practicing at Emory Healthcare since 2011. She is also the current scientific director of the Emory Crohn's and Colitis Center. So thanks for joining us today. To get started, just tell us a little bit about where you're from, how you grew up, and like maybe the first inclination you had to become a doctor. Uh, well, thank you for the invitation. It's, it's a privilege. Um, so I guess to start off, I'm from a small town in Texas called Harlingen. That's where I grew up, went to high school, et cetera, until I went to college in Southern California, which was a big change. When I went to college, I already knew that I had an inclination towards going to medical school, but my original thoughts were actually of uh, doing primary care. I really felt that that was really would seem to be lacking, and I kind of felt that that would be the best way to kind of help. So then you stayed in uh, Texas for medical school, right? Yes. So after college, I returned to Texas for medical school because it was actually a very fantastic economic deal. So if you're a Texas resident, I don't know how it is now, but if you're a Texas resident, um, tuition is extremely, extremely cheap, and they have an early uh, match. And it actually ended up being a, a a great move for me as well because I was closer to family, which I had gotten a little bit homesick um, through college. So then you ended up coming to Emory for your general surgery residency. How did you pick surgery? So through medical school, I had really great uh, surgery rotations and really felt like even though I was working really hard and I distinctly remember one morning where it was like 4 a.m. and I'm walking through the parking lot because medical students parked far, far away. (laughs) And I was wearing scrubs and it was winter. And it does get slightly cold in San Antonio. (laughs) But I was cold at the time, wearing my jacket and realizing that scrub pants are very thin and I was very cold. And walking in through the parking lot, going towards the hospital and feeling like, is this really what I want to be doing for the rest of my life? Um, Waking up really early to get to the hospital, et cetera. And I got a distinct sense that, yes, it was. That even though it was a lot of hard work and a part of me still wanted to be in bed, that what we did for patients was very real and was very tangible and that that was something I could definitely see myself doing for a long time. You decided to go into colorectal surgery and did your fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic in Florida. What made you decide to go to colorectal surgery? The way I chose colorectal was I think it's the best of both worlds in the terms of doing major abdominal operations, minimally invasive, large open operations, but then also having kind of small rectal cases, you do colonoscopies. And so I just really think it's a really good mix of, of everything. I didn't really see myself as, you know, being someone who enjoyed doing big cases every single day. I like the ability to have smaller cases, faster turnover on some days, maybe longer, harder, more complex cases other days. And so I like the mix, and it just, colorectal seemed to provide that perfect mix for me. We then asked Dr. Schaefer to describe a challenge she'd faced during her training. So I did uh, two years in the lab in my residency. Coming out of the two years in my lab, we used to take home call, 
um, which was Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday was, was your kind of call. And then the next week was Tuesday, Thursday, and then you did it again the following week. And so I was on my Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday call, and it was Friday. Um, and by home call, you still had to come in and see all the consults. So it was technically home call, but obviously you were here a lot. And so I remember I was about to start a case, and it was 10 till 5 on a Friday. I pretty much hadn't seen, you know, my husband the whole week. And I was going in to call, and I remember calling him 10 till 5 and saying, we're starting uh, official a takedown, which is like 10 or 12 hours. And then I'm on call. Um, so I, you know, love you, good night. I'll see you when I see you. And so, you know, did the official call. And while you're doing it, you're getting console calls, et cetera. And then you're still on call Saturday, Sunday, et cetera, till Monday morning. And then Monday, you're still working a full day. Um, so that was actually really hard. And after that, I was moving on to Grady Trauma. And at that time, they hadn't quite figured out the holiday schedules. And since I was on trauma, you couldn't take any vacation or holidays and so we actually work straight through Christmas and New Year's and so I think the combination of all those things really was for me a little bit of a breaking point in terms of like I, this is if this is what it's going to be like this this is not what I want um and so it took a lot of um soul searching I never for a minute doubted that I wanted to do surgery I just didn't, wasn't sure that I wanted to do surgery the way it was at that moment in time. And so I did consider kind of quitting residency. And I had com several conversations with, with several people. And it's, it's kind of interesting because at the time, uh, Dr. Dodson was our program director. And Dr. Dodson um, is fantastic. But looking back, I was a little bit afraid of him in the sense of I didn't want to disappoint him. And I... I didn't want him to think that I couldn't do it. So then I got the schedule for fourth year, and that was really the breaking point. So fourth year, I was doing trauma again around the holidays. Just having it on my schedule, it just was it. I was like, I'm, I can't do this two years in a row. And so I went to um, Keith and told him I, I have this schedule, like I'm quitting because of this schedule. Like I can't do it two years in a row. It ended up working out for both of us to switch. And for whatever reason, mentally, that was enough for me. And obviously I stayed. So I think for me, the key difference uh, for per in terms of kind of burnout is that I think that when you're a resident, you don't have a lot of control over your schedule. Because I still feel now, I mean, I have a lot more pressure in terms of responsibility towards patient care, things I have to do. And, you know, I have a lot more things going on at home. I have two kids and trying to do all those things. So my plate is actually, I would say, more full now than it was when I was a resident. But I have a little bit more control, actually a lot more control. So if I know that there's something important coming up for me. So at the beginning of the school year, I talk to my kids' uh, teachers and say, okay, what are the, so I pick, you know, the major parties the recitals, the things, and then I put them on my calendar, and that's it. And so, like, it's really important for me to go to Muffins with Mom. And so I always put that on my schedule. 
um, for somebody else, that might seem like a silly thing and not really that important. And maybe for them, going to a soccer game or a baseball game might be more important. So then they would put that on their calendar, whereas, you know, maybe I would miss a party here or there. So I think there's not one solution that is good for everybody. I think you as a person have to decide what are the things that are important and then put them on your schedule. Unfortunately, when you're a resident, you're kind of on borrowed time. So you can't say, oh, well, my child has a musical, so I'm going to not go, you know, I'm going to schedule clinic because you don't have control of that schedule. And so I think that's what adds a lot to the um, the difficulty in, in terms of trying to, you know, live your life in a fulfilled way. I will say that residency is long, and so I think that you also have to know that during that time you aren't in control of your schedule and that you kind of just do the best you can, get the most um, in terms of learning to kind of help you for when you're done. And there was an interesting study I wanted to talk about um, from JAMA in September. It was a prospective cohort study following over 3,000 PGY2s that had been followed since med school. And they found that both being a general surgery resident at the PGY2 mark and being female were independently associated with higher relative risk of burnout. Um, I think um, expectation um, has to do a lot also with whether people burn out or not. If you were in medical school and you did really difficult surgery rotations as a medical student and you took call and you were busy and you didn't get to sleep and you had to balance studying for exams and being good on the wards and preparing for your cases and you did all that and you still wanted to go to surgery residency, I think that you're probably less likely to burn out than if you had a you know, relatively easy medical school rotation in surgery, but that surgery was cool, but didn't really see the other aspects of how it's cool, but it's also really hard. And you go into residency expecting that it's going to be similar to your medical school rotation, then I think you're going to be vastly disappointed. Um, And I think that your chance of burning out is going to be higher because you're like, this is not what I signed up for. Um, But I think that if you know what you're signing up for, as much as you can before you do it, I think that your chance of burning out is a lot less. Um, you've also um, talked with me and some other residents before about the importance of mentorship, especially in an academic career, and about how to go about getting involved and moving up in maybe some academic societies. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely mentorship is important in terms of you know your career advancement, but I think also uh, this thing called sponsorship which is when someone actually puts you up for committees and and does those things. Um, If there's not a lot of people um, at your institution, uh, in your field, or for whatever reasons you don't find, you know, maybe they're not active in the societies that you want to be active, then it becomes a little bit harder. And I think that that's when you have to be a little bit more proactive. And there are uh, societies, and I'm going to put a plug in for the Association of Academic Surgery, where you can actually self-nominate and you don't need someone to specifically sponsor you, but you then do have to kind of drum up, you know, ask people to vote for you, et cetera. Um, That's actually one of the places where I've kind of got started. I've been involved with them probably since 2012, and so I'm actually now on the executive council, and um, I'm co-chair of a committee this year, and I'll be chair next year, and so that's over time how I've kind of advanced there. And as people that are pretty junior, I'm super junior, obviously, in my training, people ask kind of like your five or 10-year goal. And for me, it's definitely like the dream job. Like, I just got to get to 
you know, whether it's like being an attending or just like the, the dream job. Now that you have that quote unquote dream job, what are your five or 10 year aspirations? Honing in on my technical skills is definitely important and keeping up with the technology. So it's been very humbling to kind of relearn how to operate using the robot um, because you feel like, oh, I've already learned this, but then having to put yourself again in the learner seat and do it again. And I think it's good for us to do that over and over again. And I think it's also helped me hopefully empathize better with some of my junior residents who are, you know, still learning how to do laparoscopy to remember that it's not as easy as I feel it is now if I put myself back when I was a learner. And so putting myself in situations like relearning how to do a colectomy with a robot, I think has been humbling and good for um, kind of empathizing with my learner. I think that's one aspect. I think in terms of kind of my career aspects, we are trying to get a fellowship going. And so I think that that will hopefully be the next phase of my academic career. And then as well as kind of pushing some of our inflammatory bowel disease research and improving the care of those patients forward. What's the next topic in IBD that you want to look into? Well, I really think that for IBD patients, a lot of quality of life years gets ignored. And so I think we focus a lot on mortality. So no one technically really dies of IBD unless they have some severe complication. But I think that the quality of life years, if you think about how much that gets affected, because it's a lot of times young people, then they can't work, and then they're on pain medicine, etc. So I think that the disease burden of IBD has been severely underestimated. So on the other hand, you think of cancer, and everybody's like, oh my gosh, someone has cancer. So they get all these resources. I think they even get insurance. I don't know all the details. But you never hear of someone who can't have a cancer operation because they don't have insurance. Like somehow we figure out a way to take care of them, yet we have people in their 20s who can't get, you know, no one would ever be refused chemotherapy, yet we refuse, you know, anti-TNFs and biologics to IBD patients where I think is, yeah, they're technically not going to die next year if you don't give it to them, but if you look at the, you know, how their quality of life gets affected and over the, their lifespan, I think that that aspect hasn't been fully explored. Beyond surgery in your life, what are your hobbies and interests? My number one is just spending time with my family. It's really been amazing watching kind of my four- and six-year-old grow, and it, that, I would say, is, is, has been far, far more enjoyable than I, than I had originally uh, kind of had planned. Um, I personally like to read, and so when I'm not reading, you know, f- for, you know, journals, etc., then I actually have started to go back to read some of the kind of classics that I read in high school and loved and then haven't read for years, and so I just finished To Kill a Mockingbird oh, yeah. again. I'm currently just started reading short story by James Joyce, The Dead. It's pretty good. And because I live in Sandy Springs and it's a long commute, I also do Audible. I was just recently hearing the autobiography of Thomas Merton, who was this isolated Trappist monk in Kentucky. And I also just, um, halfway through the rise of Theodore Roosevelt. So kind of, well, that's awesome. trying to yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. Thank you so much for yeah. having me. Thank, thank you. you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to today's Wiser podcast. Hope you join us next time for another great interview.